Hey, this is Jim, pastor of Decided Church, and this is our podcast. Thanks for listening. We hope the sermon you're about to hear just blesses your heart and really encourages you. If you don't mind, subscribe. That way you'll get instant notifications every time a sermon is uploaded. And by all means, if you're feeling led to give, click on the giving link and there'll be more directions to follow. God bless. Enjoy the message. Hey, hey, I'm on. I did it. Hey, listen, so apparently I killed the batteries and I didn't know it. I've I've had it on the whole time, so it's my fault. Anyway, I don't know where I am, but I'm going to start over. Have you ever, have you guys ever been interested in knowing a specific stranger? Um, I'm a big people watcher. I don't know if you are, but I am. So when I go to places like the mall, I usually go to the mall on Mondays or anytime I go to Walmart to shop or if I go to the airport. I do this a lot at the airport, though. I've only been to the airport like two times, so I can't really say a lot. But I really do it there because you get to see people in their element. You get to see them for who they are. Usually people don't care what they look like at, at, at Walmart or at uh or at the airport, and so I, what I really do, it's so much fun, and I probably shouldn't do this, but I like, I analyze them. I look at their clothes, I look at their hair, I look at every part of them, and I try to figure things out about them. I, I try to figure out as much about a person simply by observation. Uh, it might be their hairstyle, their accent, their clothing, their mannerisms. I just want to find a way to get to know people without even saying a single word to them. That's, that's what I do for fun. I don't know if you guys do that. That might be a little weird. And not even that, but then in my own mind, I begin to develop this story about them in their lives. Like, you know, I, I think about like what they do for a living or uh, perhaps they just got off of some type of, uh, of travel. I wonder where they're from. I wonder where they just went. And so I start thinking all these, it's almost like I'm writing many novels about people in my mind continuously when I find myself in public places. And, and you know, sometimes they can be judgmental, I will admit. Sometimes they're a lot of fun. Sometimes um, I just do it uh, with my family. I've done it with my wife, Jania, uh, all the time. I'm like, hey, Jania, look at this person. Let's make up a story about them. And so we'll, we'll base a whole story, a whole a whole line of work just on this one per just observing this one person and and it's so it's it's just so much fun but what's really cool is sometimes I do the same with God you know I I think to myself I wonder what God is like does he have preferences you know how does he like his coffee if God were a person what's his favorite color now obviously I'm letting my sanctified imagination go a little too far those are some questions you know but, and, but there are some things that we can see within Scripture and some things we can see uh, within the Bible that really show us some attributes, characteristics of God. And so that's kind of where we're at in this passage. That's why I wanted to begin this way, because we're going to be reading this passage and it really gives us a hint into who God is. So uh, if you have your Bibles with you, you can follow me. We're going to be starting in verse 15. You can stand wherever you are. Or you can sit. I don't care. I'm not offended either way. You're not even here in the room. So uh, this is what the Word of God says in Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. Now, just a premise. This is some heavy stuff. So put your big boy pants on because we're going to be diving in today. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. 
He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for your word today. We're so grateful for the time that we have together here. And God, I just pray that as your word goes forth, uh, that as we read your scripture, that we ask your scriptures would in turn read us, that you would see into our hearts and our minds and that you would call things out that are not of you, that you would call the things out that need to be changed, that you would convict us, that you would conform us not through shame or through guilt, but through your Holy Spirit, that you would just start to, to work within us something new. Today, we want you to do a new thing within us. And so, God, we ask that just as we just sang about, Father, that we would have the courage to put the band in front of the warriors in our lives. God, that you would just help us in this time better know you. We give you thanks for what you're going to do in advance. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. If you guys are standing, you can have a seat. If you're sitting, you can stay seated. So, um... I just want to give a little bit of an overview for this passage because it's some good stuff. Um, this is what we would call Christology. Christology at its finest. Uh, to break up that word, to kind of explain a little more, uh, it's two words, Christos, meaning Christ, and then Lagos, meaning word. So a word about Christ or a word on Christ or a, the study of Christ, if you will. Uh, kind of like biology is the bios is life, and then ology is word, a word on life. Biology, the study of life, same idea, same thought there. So um, this type of Christology is all about the person, nature, and role of Jesus Christ and his work. And it's found all over Scripture, specifically with Paul. He gets into it here in Colossians chapter 1, but also another very huge Christological work is going to be found in Philippians 2, which I preached on, I think, over two years ago in 2018. Uh, in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11, when he talks about Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to an advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. These specific Christologies, if you will, are pregnant with theological implications. And I love that. See, what I love about Paul and speaking this very, very heavy stuff is he's not only discoursing, he's not only teaching, and still less, he's not even discussing. He's worshiping for God, excuse me, for Paul, theology, was not some interesting philosophical topic to debate. Theology always had Paul, always brought Paul, always led Paul into worship as he contemplated the excellency of the glory of Jesus, Jesus Christ. And what's so really cool about this is, is this is really kind of a poem. Um, so after the two-part prayer that we've been preaching on the last two weeks, he goes into this Christological poem. And really this these five verses are the centerpiece, not only of the chapter one, but it's really, it's really the centerpiece of the whole book. We'll see Paul go back to it time and time again throughout his time here in Colossians. It's, there, there's two parallel stanzas, 
and they're crammed with language and imagery that are found throughout all Scripture. You can see some in Genesis 1, Exodus 40, some in the Psalms, and also even in the Proverbs. And so today, I'm just going to break them down real quick. We're going to take most of our time spending in the first stanza. The second stanza is just as important. It's really its own sermon on its own. So I really didn't have time to cover the second stanza. I'm sorry, but I didn't want to preach too long today. Uh, But it does really lead in well to the sermon for next week. So really, you're not missing out on anything. It'll be there in fullness next week. So nonetheless, the first stanza of this poem explores how Jesus is the true image of God. It says that in him, the full character and purpose of God is embodied in a human. He is the firstborn. That's, a, that's an Old Testament phrase uh, that, that talks about Jesus' royal status over creation. He shares in the very identity of the one true, true creator God. By him, all reality that we know has been created. It is in Jesus that we discover the very author and king of creation. So that's what we're going to spend most of our time on, verses 15 through 17. Verses 18 through 20, we'll spend a little bit more time. I'll give you what, a little bit of an overview of what those stanzas are once we get there. But let's pause and let's go back verse by verse through the first three verses, 15, 16, and 17. This is what verse 15 says, if you want to throw it up on the screen. The sun is the image of the invisible God. First off, there's good, for you, good news for you people. As I began this specific uh, conversation, this specific sermon on asking about whether or not you ever wanted to get to know strangers, what I love about God is that we don't have to speculate about who He is. Because in God, if you want to know who God is, what He is like, we see that in the person of Jesus Christ. We could literally spend not just today, but we could spend sermon series after sermon series looking at the life of Jesus and pointing out characteristics of him that that obviously mean that there are also characteristics of God. And what's so cool about it is if you think about it this way, every time God reveals himself to man in any way, He doesn't do it directly. He does it through Jesus Christ. So every time in the Old Testament when we hear, we think a lot uh, when it comes to Scripture that that God God the Father is revealing Himself in the Old Testament, and then there's Jesus, God the Son, revealing Himself in the New Testament. We've got that all wrong. As a matter of fact, it's always Jesus. Anytime we see God in the Old Testament, when it speaks about Lord, L-O-R-D, we just did a whole sermon series about that. Every time you say that, it's not talking about God the Father, it's talking about God the Son. Every time Moses went up to the mountain, he didn't speak to God the Father, he spoke to God the Son. Because every time God reveals Himself, revealer, it's not directly it's through his son jesus christ which is why we name this whole sermon series reveal that's what jesus does he reveals he gives an image to that which is invisible god says you don't have to have a guessing game you don't have to think about where i am in my story you don't have to think about all that all you have to do is get to know jesus if you get to know jesus you get to know me you think that there's many paths to god no there's one path to god and his name is jesus christ so if you want to know what god is like don't go searching other religions don't go doing all this other stuff voodoo magic come to jesus and you'll know who i am i'm getting a little ahead of myself but we'll continue I really, really love this passage because not only is it so theological, it also gives us a little glimpse of some of the uh, heresies, some of the false teachings that may have been creeping into the Colossae church. So 
Paul speaks about Jesus, the Son, being the image of the invisible God. This would go in direct uh, rebuttal to the fact that there were some false teachers saying that Christ was not fully God. They, were, they would say something like this, that Jesus was the highest of a series of emanations between God and man. It's some higher level spirituality that he had met, and we can all get to that status, but he wasn't actually fully God. And so Paul, he's saying, hey, listen, no, 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 no. I'm nipping that in the bud right now. Jesus is God. Don't, if you want to start anywhere in your Christian journey, it's that Jesus is God. See, these, these false teachers were saying that, that Jesus wasn't supreme. He wasn't sufficient for the Christian life. Yet we see in this passage time and time again, specifically in verse 18, he says that he, the supremacy of Christ is what he's talking about here this whole time. And then it goes on to say that he's the firstborn of all creation. By the way, that doesn't mean that Jesus was created. That's an erroneous teaching. You can find that within uh, specific cults like the Jehovah's Witnesses. They would say that God's very first creation was Jesus, when really, in fact, if you read Proverbs 8, we know that his very first creation was wisdom. And on wisdom, that's how he founded the, the, our earth. is The foundations of this earth is wisdom. So um, this, this firstborn of all creation doesn't... It's not like... The Father and the Holy Spirit were, were talking like, hey, let's make this a little less confusing. Let's make another one, you know, and they're like, oh, yeah, that sounds pretty good. You know, what, what should we call him? You know, and, you know, God's the Father's talking to the Holy Spirit. You know, it sounds kind of cliche, but what about the son? Like that's that's not a, a, a thought that was good. That's not what happened here. Firstborn, uh, that term there is actually used over 130 times in the Septuagint. Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. That's the Bible Jesus would have read. That's right. Jesus read a translation. Woo! Anyway, um, 130 times the, the, th the term firstborn is used in the, in the Greek Septuagint of the Old Testament to express status or power. So no, Jesus is not a part of the created order. It speaks of his deity. He's saying, hey, listen, he has power and status over creation. He's the firstborn, as in he has control over all of it, which he begins to talk about a little more in verses 16 and 17. We'll go there. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, in, uh, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. So we've, always, we've already talked about one specific teaching uh, that was being rebuttaled is the fact that Jesus wasn't fully God. We, Paul says, hey, let's just get it in the clear. Jesus is God. Don't listen to those fools. By the way, uh, Paul would have been in prison by this time. Uh, so the way that he was able to address this, I forgot to cover this in, in week one, so I'm going to cover it now. Epaphras, being the leader of this church, would have taken several uh, things that he was worried about within his church family that he wanted questions on, and he would have taken this uh, these questions all the way to Paul who would have been in prison um, usually probably kind of like a house arrest he was able to have visitors so Epaphras would have brought these questions Paul would have answered them and he would have brought them back so this poem here is an answer to all the questions that Epaphras gave him he's saying okay let me cover it all with one Christological poem if you will so we see how Paul rebuttals the fact that Jesus that they thought Jesus wasn't full of God say hey, listen Jesus is God in the flesh if you want to get to know God don't go through other realms we'll talk about it a little bit more go through Jesus now catch this here's another thought 
this statement here in 1617 where he talks about things in heaven, visible, invisible. We'll break that down a little bit. But he says this, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. He's really taking a jab not only at the Roman Empire, but at Caesar himself. See, a lot of people, especially within the state of Colossae, which would have been a Roman colony, saw Rome as the Messiah in some way. And they had a little bit of of good reason, right? I mean, think about this. Rome had complete reign of the whole world for 1,500 years. You might not think that's long, but think about America. America turns 244 years old this year, and it feels like we've been around forever. So think about an empire that's been around for 1,500 years. And not only that, but think about their time during the world. There were real no big civil wars, and it was rather peaceful, save uh, the year of the four emperors, which if you are a history buff, you know what that is. But nonetheless, during that time, in the time when these people would have been alive, this would have actually kind of looked to be true. I mean, think about Rome. They created roads and bridges that are literally still being used today. Many things were borrowed for them, most specifically law. They had done things that had never done, had been done before. And they have done things that still haven't been done since. And so many people had put their hope in Rome's ability to take care of them. And I want to, to, to point this out a little bit, because it's kind of ironic that we're covering this today, especially in this society, but I feel like I want to make sure that we as the people of God, let us not make the same mistake with our government. Our government isn't here to take care of us. Yeah, the stimulus check was nice. Yeah, but at the end of the day, the supremacy, everything that's controlled, God, Jesus Christ is the one that has us. The, the government of America is not our Messiah, just as Rome is not their Messiah. I mean, even look at it this way. Marcus Aurelius, who would have been the last of the quote-unquote, good emperors of Rome. He wrote in his book of meditations this. He says, O nature, all things have come from you, subsist in you, and go back to you. And Paul looks Marcus Aurelius in the face. He says, close, but you're wrong. It all serves Christ. Not O nature, but O Christ. All things come from you, subsist in you, and go back to you. See, Paul was drawing from the cultural place that he was in. He's saying, hey, listen, you know these meditations. It would have been something they would have read often in Colossae. He says, these things, they're not about nature. They're not about Rome. They're about Jesus Christ. So, so this was a deep-threaded thing. And he goes on, he continues to say, we'll go, we'll go back to this, things in heaven, things that are invisible. He's speaking here specifically about the spiritual realm. Uh, it talked about a lot, specifically in Ephesians chapter 6. Angels and demons. Did you know, as a Christian, you believe in angels and demons. You believe in ghosts. It's not a weird thing. It's real. But it says, hey, listen, yes, they do exist. But guess what? Jesus created them and he controls them. As a matter of fact, if you read the Gospels, the only people that actually get it right about Jesus before his death, burial, resurrection are the demons that come up to him and say, have mercy on me, son of God. Have you come to destroy us all? The demons were the only ones to actually recognize him before the sign of Jonah. And all the invisible realities that we live with here today, like the laws of the universe, gravity, 
mathematics, matter, and light, all those things, all the invisible laws that we live by that science has discovered, the Father, Jesus Christ, and the Father rule over all of it. It's all of them. And by the way, if you haven't heard the sermon by Louis Giglio about this passage, verse 17, you need to go hear it. It's called laminate. I don't even have enough time to get there. But go look up laminate. Louis Giglio laminate. It's the, one of the best 20, 30-minute sermon clips you'll ever see. Just go look it up. I don't have time for it. So on things in heaven, invisible, the spiritual realm, Jesus Christ rules over it. Then he says, on earth, visible. I really like to take time to discuss and uh, get on my, on my, my soapbox a little bit because uh, there's this weird, um, sacred, secular lens that I, I see within Christianity that really bothers me. You know, like there's, there's things that are secular, secular music, and you know, there's things that are sacred. And, and what I see in this passage is that all things on earth, if there's something that exists in the visible realm, it says that all things were created by Jesus. He was there. They're created through him and for him. So Jesus did not die to make things secular and sacred. Listen, all things created are good but they are all perverted by the fall. Let me give you a couple examples. How about wine or alcohol in general, right? There, did you know that in the marriage supper of the Lamb, that's when Jesus comes back and he rocks Satan into his hellhole. Did you know that Jesus is going to come back, we're going to have a party, we're going to have a feast, and there's going to be wine served there. And yet I see people, now don't get me wrong, that is perverted by the fall. Do we have to drink wine, consume alcohol with wisdom and sermon? Absolutely, yes. But can you make a, a case for complete abstinence from alcohol? Not with any type of biblical fidelity. Same thing goes with sex. It's not like, it's not like God was walking around the Garden of Eden and then caught Adam and Eve on the couch and they're like, whoa, what is going on here? No, this, this is, these are things that God made. These aren't weird things. And here's the thing. God designed this world, the things that we enjoy, uh, he, he designed it to work in a certain way. And, and remember, when God tells us how to do things, how, to, how, you know, when, when it, how much to drink or when to have sex within the biblical confines of marriage, he's not, he's not trying to take anything away from us. He's, he's tapping us into life, not taking it away. I think sometimes... We think that, well, God, you know, being a Christian, I just can't do things. We, we think that freedom means getting to do whatever we please, when really true freedom is found within boundaries, not outside of them. And a good example are sports, right, man? I can't even remember the last time I watched a sport. Did you know the NFL draft had, like, the highest views ever? It's because everyone's so bored. It's not because the NFL draft is good. Anyway, but think about sports. Like, you don't see a guy who's going down the line who... Let's say, let's say soccer, for instance. They go down the line, and they kick the soccer ball out of bounds, and the ref blows the whistle, turnover. You don't, you don't see the soccer guy be like, that's not fair. I'm not playing by those rules. No, the, the, game, the fun of the game is because of the rules that are, in, that are in set. That's what makes the game a game. In the same way in our lives, there's this boundary. God says there's a freedom that exists, but there's boundaries. If you want to find the freedom, you live within the boundaries that I set. I, some people think that Christianity is just like chains, and it's not that. It's different. It's, it's unchaining. It's literally, the gospel is to unchain you, is to show you what true freedom is. So anyway, to get back on, so we've talked about two 
uh, specific heresies. We talked about how they thought Christ was not fully God. Well, Paul deals with that. Then they thought about how Rome could have in some sort of way been the Messiah. Paul says, psych. And then number three, he also is attacking syncretism. See, the thing about Rome is that the Rome created roads. And what roads did is that roads shrank the world. And it gave what's called syncretism a platform to grow. Syncretism is the combining of different religions into one. See, Colossae would have been a melting pot of religions. A collision of worldviews would have happened here. And if, if there's anything that's directly correlated to this culture, it's exactly that. The information age, all the tech, technological advances, all the things that we have, it's, be, it's, it's given syncretism the greatest platform to grow. And so what was happening within this Colossian church is that they would say, yes, Jesus, but then they would see their other friends, their Druidic friends, and they would see their Jewish friends, and they would see uh, their pagan friends, and, and they would enjoy some of the things that they do. Uh, they would like some of the truths. They, they would say, well, my Druidic friend, he's really good at loving his wife, or my Jewish friend, he's really good at praying, and I'm not, or and, and, and anything. They would just take all the truths from all the, all the other religions, and they would combine them in this, in this soup, and they would live by this thing, and, and Paul is saying, hey, listen, what are you doing? Listen, if there's truth within other religions, yes, it's there, but that truth serves the purposes of Christ. And it's all over the place in our world. I'll give you a couple examples. First off, horoscopes. Horoscopes. You know, like reading your... I'm a Libra, lucky Libra, as they say, you know. Don't get me wrong. Do I think that there's some truth in there? I think so. I do believe that the the sun and the moon and the stars, their placement... When we were born does affect who we are, but do I do I put my do I put my trust in those things? No, it doesn't even make sense. Somebody's just writing the anyway. Um, also, meditation. Now, I'm talking mostly Eastern meditation. It's been a big thing. It's really big in yoga. I've been trying to do yoga because I'm just not flexible. Eastern meditation. You know, it's it's all about emptying the mind, just clearing out the mind. It's you know you you, you get so caught up in all your stuff, just clear it out and not think about anything. Well, that doesn't really make much sense to me because meditation is commanded in Scripture all the time. Meditate. But here's the thing about Christianity is Christian meditation is about filling your mind. It's about putting, it's, yes, first you empty, but you empty in order to fill. And so we, 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 we just stop at the emptying part, and we, and we like it there. We're like, ooh, I like not thinking about anything. But the Father says, no, you're supposed to be, once you empty your mind, you begin to fill it with better things. And so uh, there's that, and then there's this one. And I'm going to spend some time on this. I'm going to be very, very careful for how I say this. Um, self-care. Self-care. Now, I just want to say off the bat, I am not saying that you can't care for yourself, okay? I'm not saying that. But let me just, let me just sh- unpack it a little bit for you. Why I think self-care is a type of syncretism. Think about this. When it comes to self-care, self-care is like, okay, I'm stressed out. I'm not enjoying my life. I feel like I'm burnt out all the time. Blah, blah, blah. What do I do? Well, there, there's these philosophers and these, big, these guys with PhDs. They get together like, oh, self-care. What you need to do is care, take care of yourself a little bit. 
Okay, so, okay, cool. What should I do? This is the things that they give you to do. Let me, let me just list them out. This is an actual, like, true thing you can live your life by, okay? First off, it says this. Exercise more. Eat healthier. Prioritize your time better. Spend time alone. Um, I don't know if you guys caught on to this, but this just sounds like a very self-disciplined person. It has nothing to do with self-care. has everything to do with self-discipline. Then... I think about it this way. Now, this is, now, I'm cool with all those. By the way, if you think self-care is just self-discipline, by all means, you need some self-care. I think it's very lacking in the church. But I, here's where it gets me. This is where self-care crumbles for me. This is where I disagree with it. Now, from, from what I've covered now, I'm cool with. But don't call it self-care. Call it self-discipline. Just be disciplined. I literally just listed off things that require discipline, not care. But listen to this. Let's say... Like, what about big things when it comes to self-care? Like, if you're struggling in your marriage, or you have a work conflict, or you have years of chronic pain and disease, or, or maybe you have this habitual demoralizing sin or shortcoming, or maybe you, you've lost a, a family member or a friend, like, what do you do then? This is what they say, the people who created self-care. This is PhD in philosophy recommendation. This is the best that money can buy, says. Blow bubbles. Oh, you're laughing. This is real. Plant a flower, hum a tune, feed wildlife, walk a labyrinth, or listen to a cat purring. That's what self-care is. Like if you actually live by true self-care. See, what we've done is we've taken what we like about self-care, which is actually truly just self-discipline, which is all over the scriptures, and we've labeled it self-care, but we don't realize that self-care also comes with this other baggage which says, hey, listen, if you really have issues that you don't know how to deal with, what they do is they just tell you things to not think about it. Blow bubbles, plant a flower. It's all a diversion. There's an item of 75 activities that you can do. And every single one of them are simply meant to get your mind off of the stressor. See, it's medication by distraction, not redemption. They're telling you to practice forgetfulness. And the Father, Jesus Christ, is asking you to pursue forgiveness. How could you actually think that getting lost in a corn maze or humming your favorite tomb could reconcile anything in your life? See, the care that you and I really need is not buried somewhere deep inside of us waiting to be unlocked by some diversion. No, our need is the need of healing, forgiving, and restoring, transforming grace of a God who loves us. That's what we need. So give me that self-care talk out of here. It's self-discipline. Just be a more disciplined person. Don't call it self-care. Sorry. It's old stuff. That's ancient news. It's literally scripture news. Self-care is scripture. Anyway, take it or leave it. And here's the thing. The spiritual climate in America, specific, most specifically the Bible Belt, which we all live in, is a greenhouse for syncretism. I mean, think about it this way. There's, for most of us, especially in this church, there's been no denominational constant in our life, right? And what that does is it leads to a mixed bag of theology, right? Uh, we started out Catholic, then we went to this Methodist church for a little bit, and then we went to a charismatic church that were a little too crazy. So we went back, we thought, oh, let's try Lutheran this time. And now somehow, some way, God brought you to decide. We're just like a bunch of mutts. And I'm cool with that, but here's the thing. What that leads to is a brittle theology, a brittle fundamentalism, if you will. And what happens is because we're not strong in our theology, we're not strong 
in our fundamentalism. We're not strong in the scriptures, if you will. It, become, it starts colliding with these New Age worldviews, this secularism, if you will, things like self-care. There's some other things that I don't have time to address here, but there's all kinds of other things that have been seeping in. And instead of just taking the truth from them and using them to pursue Christ, we just accept them. We don't realize what we're accepting in full. And, and Paul is saying, hey, listen, stop doing that. Everything that you need, if there's truth in some other religion, you can find it in Scripture. If there's truth in some other practices, you can find it in Scripture. It all works to the purposes of Christ. Every, it literally, that, that word there, created. Every, all things have been created through him and for him. And everything, really, that the Greek there is, everything is moving towards him. All those things that you see in other religions are pointing back towards him. They're pointing you to the real truth, which is Jesus Christ. Christ is the infinite cause and adequate end of all finite existence. And then verses 18 through 20, which we'll read again. This is the second stanza. The second stanza explains how Christ is bringing about a new creation. The head, he's the head of a new body, the church, which is the new humanity, where his own resurrection existence is a prototype. Because in him... God's glorious temple presence dwells, and now it dwells within you and I. It's through his death and resurrection that this new creation commences. Let's read it. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. What I want to make sure we do in leaving this passage is, is, is to really just figure out our ultimate goal within Christianity, right? I think sometimes we can have an issue in our lives. Like, let's just take this, you know, maybe I'm stressed and so what we do is we begin to do, you know, coping mechanisms and we, we think to ourselves, I just want to be, I just want to be able to get my anger under control or, or I just want to, to get out of this addiction that I have or I just want to make my marriage work or I just have, we have all these goals and those goals are good, but it's, but there's something that happens when those things become our ultimate goal. Because what will happen is, yeah, we'll work through those things. Yeah, Christ can even help you with those things. But sooner or later, what happens is if we don't actually get our ultimate goal right, we will just find ourselves continually in new chains. See, behavioral modification, the things that we want in our lives, occurs when the, our ultimate goal is becoming more like Jesus Christ. That's it. The ultimate goal for you and I as Christians isn't to make our marriage work. It's not to be a better father. It's not to get our anger under control. It's not to get out of this addiction. Yes, those things will be bridges we have to cross, but our ultimate goal is to become more like Jesus. Because it says, for God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him. There's also a, a passage in Hebrews 1.3, if you want to throw that up on the board, it says this about Jesus, and it's so good. The sun is the radiance of God's glory in the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purifications for sins, he sat down 
at the right hand of majesty in heaven. There's no guessing game. Our ultimate goal as Christians is to become more like Jesus. And in becoming more like Jesus, we become more like God. And the only way to become like Jesus is to get to know Jesus. And in getting to know Jesus, you get to know God. There's no guessing game. That's what the Father wants for you now. That's what He's inviting us to do today. So let's go into prayer and ask Him to do that for us. Father, we're so grateful for Your truth and Your words. I pray that you would just help us continually come to know you better, Father, through your Son, Jesus Christ. We're so grateful that you're not a passerby, that you're not a stranger walking, that we just are interested in, but you are a God who reveals himself to us, that we might know you intimately and that you might know us intimately. I just want to take time, Father, to pray for anybody here Maybe perhaps they've been doing that long enough in their lives. Maybe, maybe their ultimate goal in following Jesus hasn't been to become more like Jesus. It's, it's been something else. Maybe, maybe it's been their marriage that's been on the throne of their hearts. Maybe it's been their children that's been on the throne of their hearts. Those things are great, and they are a high privilege to have. But Father, you are number one in our lives. And you've proved that by putting your love on the line. You've proved that for dying for us. That even though you are God in the flesh in fullness, that you took the cross on our behalf. That even though you were sinless, you had no reason to die, you died a death and stayed dead for three days, that you might rise again and give us victory and give us purpose and give us meaning. Father, we, we thank you for that. And I pray for anybody here who maybe they're dealing with uh, with, with the syncretism of this world. It's so easy for us to, to cling on truths that are from other religions. It's so easy for us to cling to truths that we don't actually truly know and we try to, to mix them in with Christianity. Father, help us filter those things. Yes, all truth is your truth, Father. We're grateful that those things can be helpful. We thank you that those things can lead to you. They all point back to you, as your words say. They're all flowing toward you, God. So I pray that you'd help us be able to see them within the, the, the lens and the context of Christianity, within the lens and the context of Jesus. For those of them, for those people who are listening who might need a mental health day or who, who need that self-care, Father, I pray that they realize it's just self-discipline. It's just making better choices, choices that are all through your word. And we're so grateful that you don't heal through diversion, that you don't get our, we don't, you don't divert at all. You redeem. We're so grateful for a God who redeems. You've redeemed us. You redeem, you've redeemed our story. You redeemed our pain. We're just so grateful for a God of restoration today. And we thank you for Jesus because it's through him you revealed all of this to us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.